Hey, good morning, church. This is the day the Lord has made. We're happy about it. Glad you're here. It's a beautiful morning. Trust you're doing well. Uh, welcome to everyone joining us online this morning. Thanks for tuning in. We're thrilled you've joined us. We're in week number 18, chapter 18 of the story. How many of you are all the way up to date in your reading of the story? Come on, let me see your hands. Not as, not as strong as first service. But you're doing good. Now, here's my advice. If you're behind, like you're, jeez, oh, I got behind back in chapter 12. So you're like you're five or six chapters behind. Listen, just skip ahead. Because if you don't, you'll, you'll give up. Don't give up. Just skip ahead. Read nine, chapter 19 this week, and you'll be ready for next week's message. You'll be caught up. So try to stay up as, as, as well as you can. If you, if you get behind a couple of weeks, just, just skip ahead. It'll be fine. It's not the first time you've skipped, and so you'll be fine. You'll get over it. Very excited about today's message. This is from the book of Daniel about a guy named Daniel, and he is a very inspirational fellow, and that's why it's so exciting to talk to you a little bit about him. Let me give you some background. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are really historical. They're about the court narrative of the kingdom of Babylon and all of the activities there. And the second six chapters of the 12 chapters of Daniel are apocalyptic. They are prophetic. They're about the end times. And we will not try to tackle uh, those particular timelines and, and uh, prophetic images and symbols uh, in this message today, uh, but we'll, we'll tackle that some other time. By the way, if I had announced last week that next week I'm, I'm preaching a sermon on the last six chapters of the book of Daniel, and we're going to build a timeline of, of end-time events and when you can expect Jesus to come back and all that, this place would have been packed out, hanging off the mezzanine. Uh, we, you know, the, the online would be off the chart. It would be amazing. My problem is that I'm not as confident about all of those things as some people seem to be in our world. There are, some, there are some folks you listen to, they seem to know more about the second coming of Jesus than Jesus does. And <laughs> I'm just not that confident about it. So I, I'm glad to talk to you privately about some of those issues if you have a question. Because I do have an opinion, but just not strong enough to, you know, announce it from here. I do, people ask me about the rapture, which is the snatching away of the church, you know, before bad times come to the earth in apocalyptic literature in the Bible, do you believe in the rapture? And, and all I can say about the rapture is I hope it's true. I hope it's true it, it, because it's not going to be good uh, after the rapture if there is a rapture. I'm, I, I'm off the point. <laughs> the, other, the other day, uh, suddenly I found myself all alone in the office. I mean, there are always dozens of people milling about the office. Well, who knew that they were in a special meeting that I wasn't invited to? And so I walk out in the hallway, out in the inner office, nobody's there. Out in the hallway, nobody's there. I'm looking around, hello, anybody here? And I figured, I missed the rapture. (laughs) Which has always been a concern of mine. So back to Daniel. About 606 BC, we, we've learned that the kingdom divided after Solomon, north and south, Israel and Judah, 
that bad kings came to both north and south over a period of years, centuries. Prophets were sent to warn the people. And the Assyrians overwhelmed the northern kingdom and deported them into exile. And then some decades later, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. And that's where we pick up this story because Daniel was a young man, again, about 600 B.C., uh, and he was deported with other Israelites out of the southern kingdom of Judah, taken captive, carried away to Babylon. This is modern-day Iran, just to get, get some geography. Now, I want to talk to young people in the room today, especially at the early part of this message. So could you tune in if you're a teenager or a young adult? Because Daniel was probably a teenager when he's deported. Now, imagine what has happened to him, if you can imagine He's stripped of his name, he's stripped of his language, he's stripped of his culture, he's stripped of his nationality, and possibly his manhood. This was a common practice back in the day. He was a slave, in other words, with no control of his life. And so my point is simply that if anyone ever had an excuse to give into, to compromise and conform to a culture around him, Daniel and all of his, his cronies had an excuse. I mean, everything was taken away from them. They were completely devoid of any of things that were common, comfortable, convenient for them. It was a new world. And there were pressure points in this new world to conform to that culture. And yet, what we find in the life of Daniel is that he refused to compromise at one point, and that was at the point of his faith. He would not do it. This is very inspiring. And so we know that Israel fell because they forsook God, they worshiped idols, they degenerated morally, and this was the, the reflection, the consequence of the judgment of God. And so we find Daniel now in this, in this exile in Babylon, and I want to point out three characteristics of Daniel, which I hope will encourage and inspire you, especially if you're young. So it's on your outline if you want to follow. The first is this, that he had outstanding character, outstanding character. As soon as he arrives in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, he cherry picks the best of the young people out of the Israelites, and he picks Daniel. You know, he looks for intelligence. He was looking for handsome. He was looking for exceptional uh, young people. And so he picks these guys. Uh, not only Daniel, but three characters you may recall named, renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so the first thing that happens to them is that they are commanded to eat the food from Nebuchadnezzar's table, which has been sacrificed to idols. It's the choice foods. And he demands, requires that these guys eat this food sacrificed to idols. And the first thing that Daniel does in this new culture is say, no, I'm not going to eat that food sacrificed to idols. My diet's better for me anyway. And the servant who's delivered the food said, look, dude, you got to eat this food or they'll kill us. You'll end up, you know, in a couple of weeks looking all emaciated and the king will know you haven't been eating his choice foods and he'll, put, he'll kill us. And Daniel said, I'll make a deal with you. Give me 10 days. I'll eat my diet and you eat the other stuff and we'll see. And at the end of 10 days, 
Daniel and his friends were more healthy than the others. And so this was the first sign that Daniel was not going to succumb to popular opinion. He was not going to give in to social pressure. He wasn't going to give in to peer pressure. You know, just because everybody else is doing it, he said, no, not everyone else is doing it because I'm not doing it. No to this food. He wouldn't do it. By the way, Joseph of the Old Testament, whom we've already talked about, and Daniel now are the only two Old Testament characters where nothing negative is ever said about them. That's amazing. Isn't that remarkable? Nothing negative ever said. The only fault that they could, be, that they could find in Daniel throughout his life was that he was ultimately controlled by devotion to his God. He wouldn't eat the food. He wouldn't drink the drinks. He wouldn't worship the gods or bow down to any, any other except the one true God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of, my, uh, one of my mentors and favorite characters in the last generation uh, was the famed coach of the UCLA Bruins basketball team, Johnny Wooden. I literally have all of the books that Johnny Wooden wrote before his passing. By the way, uh, Johnny Wooden grew up in Martinsville, Indiana, here in the state, and my maternal grandmother was a classmate of Johnny Wooden at Martinsville High School. I just learned that just a few years before my grandmother passed. And when I found that out, I spent a whole day with her one day saying, tell me everything you remember about Johnny Wooden in high school. It was so fascinating. Johnny Wooden led the UCLA Bruins to 10 NCAA basketball championships in 12 years. This was from 1963 to 75. He said, and, and uh, quoted his father in many of his books, he said that his father was the, was the best man that he ever knew. The best person he ever met was his father. That's, that's quite a statement, isn't it? By the way, if you, have, if you can say that same statement, congratulations, you hit the lotto. That's very rare, very rare thing. His father had a number of values that he would teach Johnny Wooden and his three brothers. And among those values that were in his books were what he called the two sets of threes. Two sets of threes. Here's the first set of three. They're very simple. Number one, never lie. Number two, never cheat. Number three, never steal. Never lie, never cheat, never steal. Pretty good advice. The second set of threes goes like this. Don't whine. Don't complain. Don't make excuses. Don't whine. Don't complain. Don't make excuses. We could end the sermon right here, can't we? Any questions? Now put yourself in Daniel's place. Completely completely displaced from his culture, from everything normal, everything normative. And he is there. And he's pressurized into this pagan culture. And I just think about Daniel. He's not whining. He's not complaining. He's not making excuses. Amazing. I found this quote from a guy named Philip Bliss this week. Philip Bliss, a 19th century Christian author and poet. Look at this on the screen with me. I want you to really capture this if you can. Dare to be Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Leave that on the screen for a minute. Let's let that soak in. How good is that? Young person, teenager, 
dare to be like Daniel. I dare you. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Isn't that good? Isn't that strong? Love that stuff. Outstanding character. Here's number two. Overcoming courage. Daniel and the others could have easily eaten the food, sacrificed to idols. No one would have known any difference. But they courageously appealed from release from that diet. Takes courage, doesn't it? Takes courage to obey God's command at work. It takes courage to do that at school when faced with compromising situations to speak up for Jesus when given those opportunities. Takes courage to do that. In the 18th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, now Daniel's been in Babylon now for about 20 years. This whole captivity lasted 70 years. So he's there for 20 years. And the king at that time set up a 90-foot image of himself, 90 feet tall. It was 9 feet wide, 90 feet tall. I don't know how they propped that thing up. It's an image of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he makes this decree, no one can worship or pray to or give homage to any god except the image of the king. And anyone who violates, who violates this law will be put to death. Now, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to worship the idol. They quote from Exodus 20, the law of Moses. They say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to an idol. And immediately, these Chaldeans, they're in Persia, accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of breaking this rule and They say they're not paying homage to the king. They're not serving the God of the king. They're not worshiping the image of the king you set up. And it amounted to treason. And so the king loves these guys because they've distinguished themselves in every way. He relies on them for wise counsel. And so the king says, look, I'm going to give you another chance because, you know, I really like you guys. And so we're we're going to get the band to start up the music again. And as soon as you hear the music everybody's going to bow down to the image that I've set up. We're, we're in agreement, right? And these guys say, no, 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 I don't think so. Here's a confession of faith that comes from these three Hebrew children and an act of obedience. Let me just give you two aspects of obedience that you may not have thought about. If you want to obey God in your life, two things should come into play, at least. Here's the first one. You have to experience death to self-will. Death to self-will. Jesus said, John chapter 5, verse 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. John 4, 34, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Are you seeing the theme? John 6, 38, for I came, Jesus said, down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus, you remember in Gethsemane, perhaps, when he's praying the night of the betrayal, he simply prayed, Father, not my will, but thine be done. So there was never a moment in Jesus' life when he wasn't aware of his purpose, his mission, why he was here in the world. And this was according to the will of God. So he was determined to fulfill his mission by seeking to do the will of God. Now, what I've discovered and what I know many of you've discovered is that it doesn't matter how spiritual you are or how long you've walked with Jesus, the times will arise when you have to decide 
whose will is going to prevail in your life. Can I get an amen? I mean, it happens almost every day, sometimes many times per day. We have to decide either my will is going to be accomplished or God's will. Can't, I can't do both. And so we have to decide whose will will prevail. So in order to obey God, we have to die to ourself and our own ambition and our own will. Sorry to break the news to you. And it's part of the deal. Now, here's the second thing that's always, always important to accompany obedience. When, when, you're, when you're standing obedient to God in your life and deciding obedient paths in your life, and that is to experience joy in it. You weren't expecting that, were you? I want you, I want you to hear this. Without joy, I, I'm a guy that's walked with Jesus for over 50 years. I know what I'm talking about. Without joy, obedience becomes drudgery, depressing, deadly. Life loses its flavor, and it can become really dark. How are you doing today? You know, you've been serving Jesus for 50 years. How are you doing? Uh, uh, well, uh, I'm, well I'm, a, I'm, wait, I'm a little tired. Just a second. Um, yeah, I'm doing, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty well. I think I'm going to be okay. Jesus said an interesting thing in Luke 17, 32. An interesting phrase. He said, remember Lot's wife. It's curious. Remember Lot's wife. Let me remind you. Lot was a guy who lived in a place called Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah that suffered the judgment of God by fire because of the wickedness there. Lot and his family, he was a relative of Abraham, you know, Father Abraham. And so they're related. And Lot gets word from God, judgment's coming. And God says, hey, Lot, get out of town. Get your family, get out of town. Judgment's coming. So Lot gathers up his family, including his wife. Now, Lot's wife was angry. She was angry at God. And here's probably why. In her heart, she was married to living in Sodom. She liked it there. She liked her house. She spent a lot of time developing the house. She got it just the way she liked it, and it was home to her, and she loved her house, and she loved her friends and her social circle, and she loved the social status she had because Lot, her husband, he was a big shot, and so, you know, she liked living in Sodom, and she had no desire for God's perfect will if it meant losing all those things. She not only lost God's will of a new beginning with peace and purpose in her life, but she also lost all of her earthly dreams, her longings, and her life. She lost it all. Because when God asked her to relocate, she wasn't happy about it, and she resisted it. And one of the orders when they, when they left town, God told Lot to remind his family, listen, leave town and don't look back. Leave town, don't look back. Uh, there, there's new opportunity. There's a new beginning. There's a hopeful future. I'm with you. I'm leading you on. This is my will for your life. Don't look back. And she looked back. And it cost her her life. It's an amazing thing. We live in a world right now where this post-COVID world, this post-pandemic world, 
now has left everybody a bit, a bit shaken and a bit confused, and we all suffer for it, you know, in this whole uh, extreme mental illness phenomenon that we're experiencing, and, and all of the consequences of that, are, those are real, and, and those are hard to deal with. But on top of that, you have the political culture in which we're in right now, and we have war in our world, and we have all of this social upheaval in our world, and it just compounds on us, and it can take from us the simple joy of knowing that God is in control. Let me just remind you of something. Nothing or no one, no circumstance, no demon of hell can steal God's joy from your heart. Can't take your joy. Can't take it. God is the one who's promised to be with us. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's with us right now. He knew all of this was coming. He's not worried. He's not wringing his hands. He's not pacing the floor. He's not anxious. He's not upset. He's got everything under control, and he's promised to be with us. He's the one who said, I began a good work in you, and I will be faithful to complete that good work in you. The best is yet to come. And so we have this wonderful faithful God who reminds us that even in obedience, even in the hard choices of obeying God's will, his perfect plan and purpose for our lives, even in the difficult choices and transition moments of our lives, that if we will honor him and obey him, that God will allow us to do it joyfully and hopefully knowing that he has already gone before us and that the best is yet before us. So keep your joy. Hang, hang in there because God is with us. These three men decide to obey God in the face of bowing down to this idol. They're not going to do it. We're going to obey God. Now, they could have compromised. They could have compromised in their heart about that and said, okay, let's agree. We'll bow down. When the music starts, we'll bow down. But in our hearts and in our minds, we'll be worshiping the one true God, not this idol. But they, they chose not to do it. I saw this uh, T-shirt uh, this week that really encouraged me. And it basically, this is what it said, normal is not returning, but Jesus is. I like that. That helps, doesn't it? That's encouraging. So the music started, and they were standing there. They said, look, here's the deal. The God we serve can deliver us from this fiery furnace that you're threatening us with if we don't bow down and worship you. And it was stoked up seven times hotter than usual. And they said to the king, they said, to Nebuchadnezzar, look, the God we serve can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, there's one thing for sure you can count on. We're not bound down to that image. We may burn, but we will not bow. There are some things that may happen or may not happen, but one thing for sure that's not happening, do you hear me, young people? We're not bowing down. We're not compromising our faith. We are not acquiescing to any pressure points, even to the point of this fiery furnace. It's an amazing moment. And friends, let me just remind you that looking into the white hot flames of that seven times hotter furnace is exactly, listen, is exactly what it looks like to stare into the perfect will of God. You know, people romantically say, I've given God my yes, I put it on the table, and I say, whatever God asked me to do, I say yes. 
You can be casual about that, and you can be romantic, you can over-spiritualize that all you want. But sometimes, following Jesus means you're facing a furnace. It's the very same thing. And there are no guarantees, none whatsoever. There is only the invitation to go into the furnace. You're not sure how it's going to turn out. All you have is the invitation. And on this side of the furnace, all the voices are screaming, aren't they? They're all mocking. They're all challenging. What do you mean? What do you mean you're going to follow Jesus? What do you mean you're going to live like a Christian? What do you mean you're going to have a biblical worldview? What do you mean you're going to embrace values and morals that reflect tradition and, and, and scriptural principles? Don't you know that being a Christian is unpopular? Don't you know that Christians are mean and they're, they're angry and they're judgmental and they're narrow-minded and they, and they go around hurting people and damaging culture? We need to reject Christians. What do you mean you're going to follow Jesus? Don't you know you won't have any friends? Don't you know that people ostracize you? Don't you know you'll fall out of favor in your social circles? Don't you understand that, that, you, that you're giving up your life to be a follower of Jesus? And all the voices scream. And, and the demons scream. And in your own conscience, you imagine a life of loneliness and no friends and no meaningful connections. And gosh, I don't know if I can pay this price. I don't know if, if, the, if I can afford the cost of this. Until you cross the line. Watch it now. Watch it now. There's a lot of uncertainty. And facing into a fiery furnace is exactly what it implies to fulfill the perfect will of God in your life. Until you decide, that's it, I'm going. Crossing the line. Throw me in. Tie me up. Throw me in. We'll see what happens. Daniel chapter 3, look on the screen at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? Yes, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. Uh Uh-oh. Unbound, unharmed. The fourth looks like the son of the gods. Oh. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. What? Nor was a hair of their head singed. Are you kidding? Their robes were not scorched. Seriously? And there was no smell of fire on them. That is amazing. What do we learn from this story? What we learn is if you will not bow to the peer pressure, to the threats, to the lies, to the, conf- to the expectation of conformity to current modern pop culture, if you, if you decide to follow Jesus instead, what this story teaches us is that Jesus will manifest himself in your life. They threw three boys in, but a fourth man appeared, like the Son of God. And we know that this same Jesus has promised to never abandon us. And even in the, in the, in the course of the fiery furnace, we find Jesus 
faithful. A second thing that we learn from verse 25 is that all your bondages will fall away. When they put them When they put them in the fiery furnace, they were bound. But when they came out of the fiery furnace, there was no sign of the bondage. And so the bonds and the hurts and the fears in your life, God will remove from you as you follow him obediently and courageously. This is the promise of the word of God. And not only that, but ultimately you will influence the world, the people around you in a powerful way. And that leads me to this third point, which is an ongoing commitment that Daniel and these others made to be a positive influence on others. When Daniel and his three friends did not defile themselves as teenagers, remained faithful to God, God took care of them and loved them. God saw integrity in the faith of Daniel, and as a result of that, he increased his influence. You cannot forget God in your life and expect to influence others in a righteous way. God set these young men in the highest positions in Babylon, and when they served him, served him first, kept his commandments, God used them to influence the world. Seventy years have passed. Daniel is now in his 80s, all the way to chapter 6. And now the Babylonians have been overcome by the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, immediate neighbors. A new king, Darius, is reigning. Ambition, jealousy, selfishness, and greed now drives Daniel's critics to persuade Darius to sign a decree. Jealousy and positioning for power is a great and common sin. We see Vladimir Putin in our world suffering from these these sins, politicians in our own country. Daniel, on the other hand, was thought to be vulnerable only at the point of his faith. Now follow this. His enemies, who wanted to destroy him, move him out of the picture, thought to themselves, the only way that we can manipulate and control the king to, to, to get rid of this Daniel character is at the point of his faith. Now think about this. The greatest fault, quote, fault, found in Daniel was that he obeyed God rather than men. May we ever be so flawed. It's an amazing thing. And despite the threat of death... Because Darius did sign this decree, anyone who worships anyone but me, this is treasonous, you'll die, thrown into the lion's den, as it were. As soon as this decree is signed, that day, Daniel went home, as was his custom. He opened the window of his apartment toward Jerusalem, got down on his knees, and prayed, prayed for the nation of Israel, prayed to Almighty God. He did this three times a day, every day. And his critics, his enemies, knew this were true. They, they followed him home. Don't you know when Daniel opened the, the door, windows of his house that day to pray that the devil said, you better close that window. Better not pray today. Be thrown into the lion's den. You keep praying to God the way you've been. They catch him at prayer. Prayer. 
and he's taken before the king. Let me make a statement to you. Commitments are best made before crisis. Hear your pastor now. Commitments are best made before crisis. If you wait until the baby dies or your wife leaves or the business collapses, it'll be too late. It'll be too late. For years now, over 40 years as the pastor of this church, I have given given witness to a particular phenomenon that is especially troubling to me personally. You'll discern in just a moment that I'm rather passionate about the idea. What has happened to me many times over the last 40 years is a man, a husband, father, will come up to me either after a worship service or call for an appointment and come into my office, and they will have the same story. I've heard it over and over again, time and time again over 40 years. The guy walks into my office and into my space, and he has the same countenance. They all look the same. They are completely sober. They are as sincere. Every cell in their body is as sincere as they can possibly be. They are, they are frightened. They are confused. They, they, they are desperate for help, and they are, they are completely sober. They are, oftentimes, they'll be carrying their Bible like a security blanket in the midst of their crisis. And they will, they will contextualize everything in the, in, the most, in the most pious terms. Well, I've been praying, Pastor, I need to tell you something. I've been praying, please, I need some help. And here's, and here's, here's my story. And they all have the same story. So it's been the, it's the same. Just a different person, time after time. And the story goes like this. This isn't the part they tell me, but this is the part I know. These folks get married. They start their lives. They grow a family. Their wives are lovely Christian women. They're devout. They pray. They, they serve their families. They, they supply for their family. They raise their children. They are, they are sincere in every way. These are good women. These are good women. And the husband takes this good woman for granted. And he succumbs to a common problem that seems to be generally true of all men, unless we are intentional to avoid it. We become passive in things related to spiritual matters and to deep and important relational connections. Men tend, in general, to be passive spiritually and passive in their primary relationships. This is why wives feel abandoned and children feel neglected. Even in the physical presence of these men, they're still withdrawn and disconnected emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And because of this pattern, they live for year after year after year, and the wife prays, and the wife sometimes comes to me, prays, Please pray for my husband. I want him to be the kind of spiritual man and husband and father that I know God wants him to be. He's a good man. He's got what it takes if he'll just do it. If he'll just surrender his life to Jesus in a more meaningful way. And, and so years pass and sometimes decades pass. And now when the man finally presents himself to me, so pious and so fearful 
and so sober and so serious and so many times tears in their eyes because they're about to lose something precious to them. And the reason they're about to lose it is because the wife has said within the last few days, I've had it with you. I'd rather go it alone than try to follow Jesus and raise these kids dragging you along like an anchor. So no more for you. I'm done with you. I want to leave you. And now he wakes up. Now the, now the idiot is awake. Now the moron realizes what's happened to him. Now the fool comes, comes to terms with reality. He's, he's a total idiot. He's a moron. He's insane. He's more, he's, he's more devoted to impressing his beer buddies and his golf buddies than he has taken care of his own soul and his own family. Shame on him. Shame on him. And shame on you if you're living the same pattern. And just as sure as God is in his heaven today, I'm talking to someone living this lifestyle right now. And they say to me, help me. Help me save my marriage. Help me save my family. And then I talk to the wife, and she looks me with steely cold eyes, and she will tell me this story, and she will say, no, no, I'm done. I am done with him. And you know what she means when she says she's done? Virtually 100% of the time in my 40 years of experience, you know what she means? She means she's done. Because dopey, the moron, the idiot, the, the guy who can't come to terms with who he is as a person of God, he can't embrace authentic manhood, he's got to be some kind of teenage moron, some child chasing all kinds of lesser things, more important to him, because he can't see it, he loses her, and he loses his family. And these same guys, you know, it's, well, they're sincere now. They've repented now, and now they want to get right with God and live straight. That's what happens to them, right? No, no. As soon as, as, soon as the divorce happens, now they perceive themselves as free moral agents, you know. They're not carrying their Bible anymore. They don't come to church anymore. They're just out there, you know. They're, they're, they're free to express themselves, you know, and get, in, get back in touch with their, their, their buddies that drew them away from their families to start with. Idiots. Morons. I, listen, I am resisting the urge to curse right now <laughs> like you would not believe. If, it, if, if I could get, I could get away with it, but I won't because there's a grandma on here who might have a stroke. And so I, I don't want to do that to her. But if I could, I would. I'd call you every name in the book because you're, you're, all you are is a mistake. You're a mistaken identity. You don't know who you are or why you're here. You don't, you, don't, you don't know how to invoke the blessing of God in your life. You don't know what it means to live, to live in the flow of God's. You don't know what it means to live under an open heaven. You don't get it. You're too dull. You're too dumb. Something happened to you. You fell on your head when you were a baby. We don't know what happened to you. You're just an idiot. You're a moron. You can't get it, apparently. You're just too slow. And so here you are. And you think you're okay, but you're pathetic. You're pathetic. My point, commitments are best made before the crisis. Today's the kind of day, sir, when you should devote your life to Jesus Christ fully and faithfully. 
A moment like today is the day that you should recommit your, your life to leading your family faithfully as a spiritual man and to loving your wife as a person who knows Jesus and wants the best for her. Today's the kind of day when you make a decision that your children are going to be your priority and not your career, not your hobby, not your favorite other thing, whatever it is. Today's the day you make that commitment because you're looking at a guy who has to try to pick up the mess that you make, have to pick up the pieces from your moronic decisions. And, here, and by the way, I'll be here. I'll be here waiting for your wife, and then I'll be here waiting for you to tell me your sad story. But when you do, just remember, you're not going to get a lot of sympathy from me. I, t- I take my what would Jesus do bracelet off when, when men come to me like that. I ain't got time for that. Because it is so frustrating to me. Did, have, have, I, have I said this forthrightly? Did I, was it, were you, are you confused at all about what I think about this whole category? Listen, I, I can just generalize. I can generalize the whole American culture, right? The whole, the whole Western cultures of the world. And, and you, point, you point to a problem. we got lots of problems. They're piled up, problems on top of problems, crises everywhere. And let me just say this, and, and, and you'll just call me simple and, and walk away and go, he was just too simple to be alive. But here's what I think. I think that the absence of authentic manhood, godly manhood, is the source of every problem in the world. Men failing to be the men God wants them to be. And the cascading consequences of that in every category you can name. And what does culture say? Well, culture says now the problem is that women aren't getting equal treatment. So the culture is completely upside down. The culture says if we can just elevate women, then we'll cure all of our problems. Stupid. The call should be to men. The call should be to men because if you have godly men, women will rise to their appropriate place. I promise you they will. You don't have to, you have to advocate for that. If men are godly men, women will find the right level, the right place, the right opportunity. And so were their children. And so, so, will, the, so, will, so will the political and social issues find their level of blessing and favor if men will take their rightful place. Let me make this statement. I got Obviously, I have to finish. I'll put it on the screen for you. A church that is on its knees with the windows open to Jerusalem is a church that is in danger from the world but safe from the lions. You won't understand that statement, so you have to look, go back in the app and look at the notes later and just think about it. I'll move on. David was thrown into the lion's den, and we note that Darius was up all night. He's the most powerful man in the world. He has every convenience, every luxury. He has, his word is law. He's the most powerful human being in the world, and he's up all night pacing the floor, wringing his hands because he's, he's afraid for his friend Daniel. And Daniel is just the opposite. Daniel knows God, and he has peace that passes understanding, and the, and the Lord has shut the lion, lion's mouth. These lions are starved. 
Later, the guys that accused Daniel get thrown into the lion's den. The Bible says they were dead before they hit the ground. The lions caught them in the air and killed them before they hit the ground. These, these animals were hungry. And Daniel is using them for a pillow all night. Can you see him on the mane of a, of a, of a male lion snoring away? The lion's laying there going, does this guy snore all night? You know, the rest of us will never get any sleep. Perfectly at peace. And in the morning, Darius races to the lion's den. Daniel, are you still with us? He's, he's afraid. Daniel said, oh, yeah, yeah. Could you quiet down? He said, I need about 10 more minutes. Be fine. <laughs> what is going on? There's a great contrast there. Watch what happens. Daniel chapter 6. Look on the screen. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations, peoples of every language and all the earth. May you prosper. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Interesting phrase. The God of Daniel. For he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus after him, the Persian. An amazing influence. The most powerful man in the world now comes under the influence of Almighty God through the faith of a man named Daniel. Now let me conclude with this statement. Darius did not see God, but he did see the God of Daniel. And the same is true today. Let me put this statement on the screen. I want to leave this as the, the last thought. Many people don't know about God in our culture today, but they do know about your God. They picture God through your life. Their image and understanding of God is what they see Is God real in your life? Now let's pause and pray about that. Lord, we would be bold today to ask for outstanding character and overcoming courage, ongoing commitment to influence. But Lord, we, we choose boldness today with as much humility appropriate. Enlarge our character, Lord. Expand our courage, our commitment to influence. May we dare to be like Daniel. May we dare to stand alone. May we dare to have purpose firm. And may we dare to make it known. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me?